Acts chapter 2. We've looked, I believe, at this text for six sermons. This is not the last one, but it is the next to last one on Acts chapter 2. So, Luke has told us how the Spirit came, how the Feast of Firstfruits was fulfilled with the coming of the Spirit, putting an end to the annual cycle of death and rebirth, and inaugurating the new age of eternal life. We described what happened. The Spirit came, Peter preached and explained it. Everyone, or those who were going to, repented. And now, at the end of the chapter, he has seven verses of summary that describe the basic ongoing life of the church. Now, surprise, surprise, these seven verses contain 14 practices that the early church engaged in. We've seen already that Luke, like many other biblical writers, likes seven as the number of perfection. And the church here engages in 14 activities. So, we... Maybe we'll enumerate them all on a quiz next Sunday or something like that. But listen now to the Word of God. Verse 41, Then those who gladly received His Word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the one who adds to your church. Teach us what church growth looks like. Teach us to engage in these 14 practices of the early church. We thank you, Lord, for the coming of your spirit, for the explosive growth of your church, and for how you continue to care for and guide your church day by day. Guide us. Help us not to be distracted, but to focus on what you have to say to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the longer summary, verses 41 to 47. And within this longer summary is the shorter summary in verse 42. So we'll look this week at the longer summary, next week at the shorter summary. What do we see in this longer summary? Well, we see the 14 practices that the church engaged in to grow. They went from 120 persons in chapter 1 to now 3,120. The church grew by 26 times. Obviously, we're not prepared for that. One day I got to this building and a pastor fellow pastor from town was in the yard here and he said to me we've had a sewer leak and we're wondering if we could come and worship with you and I said no you can't we just do not have room in our room for all of your congregation and all of our congregation it would be a mess not that worshiping on a sewer leak is good either but 
you're going to have to find a bigger room. Well, they got it cleaned up and they had worship in their building, but what would we do if our church grew 26 times in a single day? Are we so wedded to what we've got, the status quo, that we would be able to adjust? Well, Luke doesn't talk about how it was tough for the apostles to adjust. That's not anything that he's describing here. Rather, he's saying, if you want to grow, this is what you do. When you grow, when the Lord makes the church 26 times larger, here's what that church does. So he starts, verse 41, with the three biggies. The most important things. So of these 14 practices, three, I would say, are essential to the being of the church. The other 11 are essential to the well-being of the church. But these first three, without them, without the verse 41 elements, there is no church. What are they? Well, Paul, Peter describes them, or rather Luke describes them, as number one, those who gladly received his word. And the number one element in the life of the church is receiving the word of God joyfully. This, as the Reformers rightly said, is the supreme mark of the church. The presence of the Word of God proclaimed. And of course, what that implies then is equally the presence of a glad congregation listening to it, wanting to hear that Word of God. I've mentioned to you my surreal experience that highlights the importance of this truth, that the mere proclamation of the Word of God as such is not all that it takes to make a church. I was in Rochester, New York, doing pulpit supply. Uh, this was in late spring of 2014. In Rochester, New York, uh, the church where I preached had a morning and an afternoon service, no evening service. So I looked around town for an evening service, found a congregation across town up by the lake, Lake Ontario. I drove up there, massive brick building, not a car in the parking lot. The front door was unlocked. The sanctuary was a big, cold, cavernous, dark place. Looked like it seated about 450. No one in it. But the PA system was on, and a worship service was being played over the speakers. Somebody was preaching his heart out somewhere, and in this dark, cavernous, empty sanctuary, the Word of God was being proclaimed. Is that the church? Right, The Word of God was there. But I was the solo congregation member, and of course I was not a member of that congregation. Well, I was really baffled. I wondered if I had stepped into some kind of mystery story. The problem was solved as I penetrated further into the building and discovered the small group about the size of this one that was meeting in one of the Sunday school rooms back in the bowels of the building, and they turned on, they connected to the main PA system and broadcasted into the sanctuary for whatever reason, but worship was conducted in a much smaller back room. The church was there, right? There was a group that was gladly receiving the Word of God. But to walk into that sanctuary and hear preaching 
to empty pews. It's one of the strangest experiences of my life. Luke says that the church begins, the very first item in this summary, gladly receiving the word. That's what the church is. It's the group of those who gladly receive the word, who hear the word of God and say, yes, that's right. That says it. That's what I believe. That's where I'm at. That's what I want to hear more of. That's the church. This first element in the list is essential to the being of the church. Without a group that gladly receives the word of God, there is no church. Even if you have the other 13 practices. This one is the most important and that's why it is the first element in the list. From this element we derive all the other marks and practices of the church. It's from the written word of God that we receive what the church is supposed to be. Just as in the beginning the word of the Lord made the heavens and the earth, so now the word of the Lord creates and sustains the people of God. It is the proclamation of the word that makes the church. But secondly, those who gladly received the word were baptized. This is the second element in the church, the presence of the sacraments. Without baptism, right? A church with no baptisms is a shrinking church. It can carry on for a few years, maybe even a few decades, but eventually a church that's not bringing in anyone new through baptism is a church that is going to die. So again, essential to the church, word, sacrament. And then finally, the third essential item, that day about 3,000 souls were added. Not about 3,000 souls were saved. Right? Luke uses that vocabulary. In fact, he used it in the previous verse. Be saved from this perverse generation. But he does not describe the growth of the church in terms of the salvation of souls. He describes the growth of the church in terms of addition. That day about 3,000 souls were added. Were added to what? Well, were added, obviously, to the church. These first three, these three primary or primal elements in the composition of the church, word, sacrament, church membership. To hear the word gladly, to partake in the sacraments, and to be added to the local church. Jesus, in the Great Commission, of course, describes make disciples by baptizing and teaching. Without baptism, without teaching, there are no disciples being made. And Luke here mentions this third thing. You can't make disciples without baptizing and teaching, nor can you make disciples without addition to a local church. You should no more expect to grow people in Jesus without them being part of the church than you should expect to grow people in Jesus without them hearing his word and receiving his sacraments. That is, if you're not part of a local church, forget spiritual growth. The growth that Luke outlines here in this summary is both spiritual and numerical. People becoming 
what they were supposed to be as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't say that church membership has to be formal, however you understand that, any more than the Bible says that membership in Abraham's flock of sheep was formal. But to say that formal membership, where you're written down on an official list and counted as one of the body, is unbiblical, is patently absurd. Added to the church. What does that mean? Does that mean they were put on a giant Excel spreadsheet that contained the church role? Well, maybe. I mean, obviously there was no Excel in those days, but the apostles were perfectly capable of writing down names. Was it formal, informal? Luke doesn't say. He just says it was real. They were added to the church. These three practices are foundational. Growth starts with word, sacrament, membership. Gladly receiving the word, being baptized, being added to the church. The New Testament knows nothing of an unchurched Christian. Well, how does growth grow then? If we move from the practices that are essential to the being of the church to the practices that are essential to the well-being of the church, what do we see? Well, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Well, so Peter, Peter, Luke just mentioned three elements. Word, sacrament, membership. Now he mentions them again in the same order. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching. What is that? That's the word of God. And fellowship. Well, not in the same order. Fellowship, what is that? Membership in the church. Being with the people of God. And then the breaking of bread. What is that? The sacraments. Partaking of the Lord's Supper. So he says word, sacrament, church membership. Then he says word, church membership, sacrament. Well, I said there are 14 items here, but the first three are mentioned twice in a row to emphasize this is what the church majors on. If you're added to the church, if the Spirit comes to you and you receive the Spirit and begin to follow Jesus, here's what you do. You listen to His Word. You fellowship with the body. You partake of the Lord's Supper. So is that what your Christian life orbits around? Word, sacrament, church. That's what Luke says the early church was about. And then finally, the next element, number 11, we could say if we're counting down, number 4, counting up, is prayer. Apostles teaching fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. Why does our church have prayer meetings? Because the early church did. Because they loved to talk to God. If you know God, if you delight in God, if you think the Lord Jesus is the most wonderful person you've ever met, you should want to spend time with Him, to talk to Him. That's what prayer is. Prayer is essential to the well-being of the church. But Luke lists a bunch more practices. Right? They didn't stop there. No, they started there. Word, sacrament, church, prayer. If you have those four things, 
your Christian life has a very solid foundation. And what will be built on that foundation? Well, the first thing built on that foundation is awe or fear. Verse 43, fear came upon every soul. Or NIV, everyone kept on feeling a sense of awe. What does this mean, that fear came upon every soul, that everyone kept on feeling a sense of awe? Well, Luke described it, the same exact phrase, back in Luke chapter 1, as we read at the birth of John the Baptist, fear came upon every soul. I would describe it this way. It is the knowledge of who God is. That rush, as it were, that sense of excitement of this God is so much bigger and majestic and more powerful than anything I could ever imagine or conceive. And I'm just starting to realize that. So even on a very limited scale, the psychologists tell us, one of the best things you can do for your mental health is to go outside. Because when you go outside, you feel awe. Or at the very least, you feel awe more easily outdoors than you do indoors, because indoors is an environment human beings built and human beings control. Outdoors is an environment that is way beyond our ability to build or control. And just being outside makes you feel better. Because it humbles you. Because it gives you that sense of awe as you look at the majesty of the sun and the greatness of the sky and the distance, the vast sweep of the plains that is infinitely more magnificent than any built environment. No one would say that they would put up the greatest works of human art, you know, St. Paul's Cathedral, St. Peter's Basilica, against the Rocky Mountains. Or that they would take the Supreme Court building and put that against the Pacific Ocean. Right? One is clearly far more majestic and awesome than the other. Well, Everyone kept on feeling a sense of awe. If that's not the case in your Christian life, then what that means is that you're bored with Christ. Christ is not exciting. Worship is not intense or stimulating. It's boring. Not awe-inspiring, but just kind of quotidian, pedestrian, pathetic. At a minimum, the Christian life is an awe-struck life. We'll see it in our text tonight, as the narrator says twice, in two verses, that God spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt. God spoke to Moses. God spoke to Moses! Can you believe that? The Spirit came on Pentecost. Do you believe that? Are you awestruck by the truths of the faith. One of the things, presumably, that helped with this fear was the many wonders and signs 
that were done through the apostles. The Bible, church history, don't lead us to believe that miracles and signs will be an ordinary part of Christian experience in the same way that the proclamation of the word or the breaking of bread or fellowship in the church is going to be an ordinary part of Christian experience. Miracles are concentrated at various points in history. The deliverance from Egypt, Elijah and Elisha in their contest with Baal worship, the ministry of Christ and the ministry of the apostles. And yes, much of the Bible covers those periods of time. But we should not expect that wonders and signs will be done all the time by ordinary Christians. And that's what it says, of course. They were done through the apostles. These other elements are things that everybody in the church did. But the apostles alone did the wonders and signs. There's a difference there. We should celebrate the miracles and signs that were done in the early church. Realize that God can and does still do miracles, not with the same frequency, but he does. And we can move on to the next one. All who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among them all as anyone had need. Now this theme... Unlike the previous one of miracles, Christians ordinarily have not been regularly dissatisfied that they're not doing miracles. But many Christians at many different times and places throughout church history have read verses like these and been convicted about their property and how much they have and why don't I share more with the poor. One of the most famous people that this happened to was St. Francis of Assisi. Why do I have so much? Many others throughout the history of the church have felt the challenge of verses like this. Right? In our own day, books with titles like Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. We don't have to agree with everything the author says to say, well, that's true. There are a lot of hungry people and a lot of rich Christians. Does this add up? They all shared as anyone had need. Now, in our era, in our country, the church is largely an enclave of those like ourselves who don't have a lot of needs, financially speaking, who pretty much have what we need. And so this challenge, in one sense, seems distant. What is Luke saying? If you don't give to the poor, you won't grow. If you're unwilling to share, you won't grow. If your major attitude towards your bank account is mine, you can forget spiritual growth. A sign of truly having been changed by Christ is that you lay down your wallet for your brothers and sisters. Say, I want to give. I want to help. I am more interested in what I can give to you than what I can get for myself with what God has given me. The other thing, of course, the other challenge for us is, why are there no poor people in our churches? And that really comes down, we'll talk about that again in just a minute. But it says, they continue daily, verse 46, one accord in the temple. 
unity marked the early church. They agreed on what to do. Let's all go to the temple together. Right? There was no fighting over a building. We know where we're going to worship and it'll be in the temple. There was unity there. There was corporate worship there, going to the temple and participating in the worship of God at that hallowed spot. And there was eating together in homes, breaking bread from house to house. The early church ate together in people's homes. Our culture is not very big on hospitality, but the Bible is. In fact, one of the requirements for elders is that they must be hospitable. Right? What, what can we boil that down to? Well, if you've never been in his home, don't nominate him for the eldership. He's not hospitable. So what, is, what does this mean again? Do we practice unity? Obviously, we practice corporate worship. Do we practice hospitality? These things are not essential for the being of the church in the same sense that the proclamation of the word to a receptive audience is essential for the being of the church. But they are essential for the well-being of the church, which is why Luke lists them here. Unity, sharing, corporate worship, hospitality, and praise. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. That's what characterized those meals. right? Not with impressiveness and uh, hypocrisy. Oh yeah, I'll go to your house and pretend to like your food and pretend to be impressed with your interior decorating and all the time I'm thinking how I can't stand you. No, they were pure in heart. Their hearts were sincere as they ate together. They praised God. And we do that too. We love to get together and sing to our God about what He's done. Praising God. That's how the church grows. And they had favor with all the people, which I would definitely connect back to the sharing and the hospitality and the unity What does having favor with all the people mean? It means that everyone saw the Christians and said, wow, that is a good way to live. Right? It can be summed up by saying that the attitude of the average unbeliever around them was, I'm not a Christian, but I wish I were. Is that the attitude of our broader society? We know the answer to that question. And what are we Christians doing to make people say, I wish I were a Christian. For whatever reason, I feel that I can't be, but I wish I could. Where's that desire in the people around us? Well, when we practice these 14 things, it will be there. Much more pronounced than it is at this present moment. When Christians actually share, actually live an awestruck life, they look like they're always impressed by something, always amazed by God's mercy to them, always unified with each other, always eating together and sharing life together. 
something the world really would be impressed by. Ultimately, what do you chalk it up to? Well, the Lord added the fate of the church is in the hands of God. Luke begins and he ends with this being added to the church. In verse 47, he specifically specifies the agent, the Lord added. In verse 41, he simply says 3,000 souls were added. That's a divine passive. What does that mean? Well, it's a passive voice. It doesn't say who did it, just that they were added. And when the Bible says something was done, ordinarily we should understand that God did it. That's the implication of a passive voice construction. 3,000 were added by who? Well, he says it. The Lord added. We ought to be diligent about the means God has given us. All of these things, especially word, sacrament, and church membership, But prayer is our recognition that ultimately it comes down to the Lord's will for us. Prayer is our way of saying, God, add to your church. Lord, bring your kingdom. Do your will. Give us our bread. Hallow your name. The church did not neglect those things. And church membership, again, is the beginning and end of conversion. To be converted and to be added to the church are one and the same thing in the New Testament's telling. They joined the church, and the church did all these things, engaged in these 14 practices, and then the Lord added more to the church. If you're bringing people to Jesus, then you have to bring them to the church, because that's where Jesus is. The Lord added to the church. Remember, Luke is writing to help us gain certainty about the kingdom, about the trustworthiness of what we've been taught about Jesus' reign. If we follow these 14 practices as a church, we'll gain certainty. We'll know that the teaching about Jesus and about the coming of the kingdom is true. That's the upshot of Pentecost. Engage in these practices of the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, add to your church those who are being saved. Lord, help us to be generous. Help us to be hospitable. Give us that feeling of awe and amazement at what you have done for us in Christ. Forgive us for being blasé about the Christian life. Father, help us to practice unity and corporate worship. And above all, help us to be focused on word, sacrament, and membership, the foundation of these other practices. Lord, we pray that you would bring the poor to our church. Help us to evangelize. We ask that we would see people not just saved, but added. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.